0: Welcome back to The Doctor is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. I'm Dennis Wadan, Dr. Saba's producer. This episode is part of our What Plants Crave series, and it is the second half of our conversation
1: with Joe Swartz of AmHydro. We're picking up where we left off last week with Joe.
0: Thank you for growing with us. One of the things that I, that I, I want to back up to with indoor vertical farming is that people often say that one of the big cases for that is we have industrial buildings. You know, I have real estate people all the time calling me saying, "Hey, I own three buildings. I want to set up a grow room. It doesn't make sense to do a greenhouse because I don't want to build a new greenhouse. I've got my building space already." They don't take into account the high level and high expenses of designing environmental management systems and potentially re you know, structural uh, alterations to a building to make it electrical applicable.
1: upgrades. Oh my gosh.
0: That's yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I had just recently a gentleman who owns mill buildings and, you know, these are mostly wooden structures that have very old and outdated, <laughs> uh, potentially dangerous electrical, uh, services. And they just think that they're just going to plug in 5,000 led lights and grow, you know, and produce God knows how many cubic feet of water vapor every day into this space. Without looking at that. So again, it goes to our conversation about, you know, what goes into the design and what your end goal is and your design based on that will really dictate what type of technologies. And, and I, I don't see a lot of technology or a lot of application that calls for indoor vertical farming to be the, the the method of choice. One of the other challenges that I see in that, again, and this is where they talk about space utilization. This is where we start stacking systems, one on top of another. And it goes to a lot of your work, is the suddenly it becomes infinitely more difficult to manage the environment. And in most cases, there are certain cases where we have to work with limited space. And of course, in all of our CEA technology, we want to maximize the use of space. But by and large, in in our CEA industry, we are not limited by space. So if if you're looking to produce lettuce in a city, even in a city, I mean, we've got Harlem grown with a greenhouse in between two buildings. We've got Gotham and Sky Vegetables with farms on the roof. We've got farms in parks and urban areas. We have farms right outside the city limits. I mean, there's always places to grow. So the idea that we need to go vertical to get it, to cram as many plants as possible, doesn't really hold water, um, both from a productivity and economic sense. And I, I challenge anybody to go into a kindergarten classroom anywhere and look at the room and say, look at all this wasted space. There's 30 kids in here. We could easily fit 90 kids in here. Well, that's not conducive to proper learning and childhood development. The same thing with our plants. Just build a again. loft
1: and they can just, yeah. you know, sit up we there. We just stack
0: them <laughs> vertically. I mean, I could build the desks. I could <laughs> stack one on top of another. And and honestly, and, and I know we, we laugh about it, but, but honestly, that's a ridiculous concept. But for some reason, people think that that could still apply to plants and not be equally ridiculous. So we really, again, to your point of what plants crave and understanding that the, the basis of your work, uh, Nadia, is... To find the best ways to manage the environment for optimum crop growth, and you know, looking at at you know just trying to f- make a plant fit into a particular technology because you think it's cool or it's innovative or everybody's doing it, you know, doesn't really make sense.
1: Yeah, yeah. I want to I want to switch gears a little bit, um, and I want to talk to you about efficiency. Mm -hmm. Um, In a couple of different ways. First, I want to ask you, how do you think about efficiency uh, when we're talking about controlled environment agriculture?
0: So efficiency is how you can best get the tasks done that you need to get done. So, and again, and this relates to what types of technology we're using. So if it's an automated system, it's the efficiencies of utilizing mostly material handling systems, systems that move the growing plants uh, from one end to the other, or space the plants out automatically, or move systems. So the efficiencies there revolve around how you can best conduct operations in the most cost efficient, and, and to a certain degree, space use efficient method possible uh couple that or compare that with a greenhouse where you have people that need to go in and harvest plants or transplant or move things around. So uh, sometimes people criticize our systems because they have a center aisle. Well one you a grower needs to be able to access the systems at all times be need, need every day to do a crop walk to be able to be hands on the system to be able to observe what's going on in the plants to be able to actually have two or three or four people in a grow space actually interacting and doing different tasks and The ability I've seen indoor grows that were designed to again put as many plants in as possible, and you can't move around and there's no efficiency to it. So, so, so I look at efficiency in terms of our our equipment and our our, uh, technologies and the use of those, but also our human component to that, our labor component. So, I look at the operation. So, I look at it, whether it's a grow space or a greenhouse. Um, or even a, a field production system, I look at, okay, what has to get done on a daily basis and what is the most efficient way to do that? Do we have space that we can actually now use or do we have to take some space out of production and move it into, you know, harvesting and transplant or harvesting and processing? Or, you know, with movement, we may want to make a, a little more uh, space between the end wall and the greenhouse of uh, the growing system because we actually have a, a whole transplant and harvest procedure that needs to happen here four times a week. So as far as efficiencies go, again, there's no magic bullet or simple system, but I look at how how we move plants around and how we move people around.
1: It's funny how I feel like our conversation keeps coming back to kind of the same concept, which is just having space. And, you know, I've, I've never had a grower client say that they had too much space you know they always wish that they had more whether it's in their tank room or whether it's in their aisles except for the vertical farmers who want to cram everything in and so you know (laughs) then then it's wasted space Uh, you know something you said at the very beginning that just shocked me was you've been criticized for having aisle space
0: like oh, because you're wasting it? There's a um, two days ago, I posted a picture of one of our systems on LinkedIn. And one of the first comments was, I see a lot of wasted space there. So absolutely happens all the time. Yeah.
1: Wow. Um, I think I found the title yeah. of our podcast episode. <laughs> what is wasted space? wasted space? What is
0: wasted space? <laughs> um, other than what's in my head. Uh, but, but That's a
1: different conversation. That's a whole other
0: conversation. <laughs> but certainly, yeah, and, and, and to your point that, you know, when you talk to growers, we're not talking about the, you know, the armchair quarterbacks on social media. We're not talking about the innovative people who've just developed some new groundbreaking technology. You're talking to people who are in the grow room or in the greenhouse every day. And, and that's a valuable thing. And you do that every day is you talk to people in the field if you will i do the same thing i talk to farmers i farm myself i talk to growers i just this afternoon i've had about five conversations with people who are running existing facilities and they all say very similar things about is about their space and you're right um, I've yet to have someone say, wow, I've, gee, I've got a la- lot of wasted space here. I know people trying to find better ways to set up their harvest and their processing. I thought, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to run all of your operations. It's not just, wow, look how many plants I've got here. Doesn't it look really cool, but rather you're farming and, and, and you've got a lot of different things to farm. So there's nothing more annoying than setting up a greenhouse and You know, every day you're kind of trying to squeeze around this system because you built it right up close to the wall. Yeah. So so I I mean,
1: I've even had cannabis growers who said, Hey, our system works so well. And you know, we even think maybe the HVAC system is a little, you know, oversized and we could squeeze more out of it, or maybe, you know, the lights, you know, the way that we have them configured, oh, we could totally fit another row of 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 benches, you know, in the room. And so they do it and they say, well, yes, we got, you know, another 10% um, of plants in the room, but all the plants suffered. They all got smaller, they all yielded less. And so after two harvests, we said, nope, we're taking that bench out and we're going back to what we started with.
0: Yeah. Going back to our golden rule of farming is that Just because you get 10% more plants in the space, what you really need to look at is the output, the quality of the plants you're getting out, and the number of them, and at what cost. And you're right. Um, And I think that you had a conversation, um, Tad Hussey, from KIS Organics, uh, one of your recent podcasts. You guys were talking about companion plants and plants in the same system and the different ways they can communicate with each other. And now this is something that one excites me because we are literally just scratching the surface. You know, I like to say, yes, I've been in the industry a very long time and I know everything and I've seen everything. (laughs) The fact of the matter is we know so little and we're learning, but some of the most fascinating things is the, the hormonal and the chemical and even electrical impulses that go on among plants and how they communicate and how, stress on one plant or on a number of plants affects everything else. That's something that we don't really understand, but certainly even understanding that we don't understand it, we can now make inroads into trying to minimize that. And and to your point, plant stress, regardless of what that looks like, is, is not only impactful on a small number of plants, but our overall production. And yeah. so, so even if we don't understand exactly what we need to do, if we understand what's going on here or some of the concept of it, we can accommodate for that.
1: I actually, I just read another article in the last week that was talking about um, plants that are more susceptible to dr- drought stress and others that are more drought tolerant. And what they found is that the plants that get more drought stress that they, you know, do what we would expect. Their stomata start to close and they use less water and they try to conserve water. The plants that are more drought tolerant, they will continue, you know, using the, the same amount of water. They're, they're not, they're okay with using less and they can keep growing the same. But those drought tolerant plants release more volatile organic compounds yes. under drought stress, even though they're tolerant to it they're still like communicating to all to to everyone around them hey we're running out of water and they might actually be communicating to the drought stress plants um that hey you need to like start conserving water
0: i mean that impacts their growth
1: so freaking cool plants are so cool well (laughs) one of the
0: things that you had talked about um uh before and and i think one of the, the most important concepts to remember in controlled environment ag is that plants talk to us. And if we're smart and humble enough to to remember that, we'll, we'll get a lot out of that. You know, again, you know, people will say, well, look at my system. I'm going to put all these plants in the system because the system is really cool. But at the end of the day, you know, the leaf expansion, the thickness, the flavor, Um, all these different things that we can actually visit visually see every single day. This is why the crop walk is so important. Mm -hmm. You know, people tell me all the time, we're working on some, uh, um, some very interesting technologies in AmHydro. Uh, We can talk about that down the road a bit um, to give growers better tools to manage their systems. But at the same time, things like the crop walk should never be, you know, limited. People have said all time. Well, you know, the, the technology we're we're collecting five billion data points a second, and so we we can take the growing part out. And that is such a huge mistake. It is a infinite mistake because the plants are telling us so much, and the visual cues, of course, are only one component of that. But certainly, we can see that if we're looking at it, and that will tell us a lot. And we can then make our our, uh, our decisions based on that. But, you know, the plants are communicating all the time with each other. And if we're lucky, we might pick up on a little bit of that and, and make uh, decisions accordingly. But again, yeah. it just, it just proves how smart we think we are and how little we really know.
1: Yeah, plants have been around a lot longer than we have. Um, we should give them some more credit. Uh, and, you know, and and speaking of like plants communicating, um, Michelle Keller, uh, who yeah. was one of my first guests on this particular series, she talks a lot about how her plants will scream at her if they're unhappy and stressed out. And you know, I mean, just that visualization visualization, audioization, audioization. I don't know. Um, of plants screaming. I, I don't have stuck with me for months since she first mentioned that. And I was down in Mexico on vacation, um, recently and the palm trees, uh, next to our room, the tips were browning and it was windy and they were clattering against each other. Uh-huh. And I was thinking that is the plant screaming, at us that it's stressed that it doesn't have enough water and and I was just like wow you know just making that connection these plants are unhappy they don't have enough water i don't yeah, know yeah but we
0: need to listen to the plants screaming and not scream back at them and i'm afraid <laughs> michelle knowing <laughs> michelle probably screams back at them a little bit too <laughs> she don't probably says, okay, too. i
1: hear you <laughs>
0: <laughs> i hear you i'm trying give me a break <laughs> But it's true Uh, that, yeah, they, and they can speak to you in in volume if you're paying mm -hmm. attention.
1: I mean, it's interesting for her to, to talk about communication with plants as in she, you know, really auditory right? And an auditory cue that she's, she's using. I mean, I don't think she actually hears them screaming at her, but that that's how she thinks of it. Um, And you mentioned visual cues, VOCs are chemical cues. I mean, there's a lot of ways that plants are communicating and we probably don't even communicate in all of the ways. We might not even have all the sensory, uh, the same sensory system that plants have and might not even know how they're communicating with each other.
0: But it's amazing how many growers I talk to. I've told this story before. Um, I was actually mowing the lawn in front of my greenhouses and all I could smell is fresh cut grass. And then all of a sudden, as I'm mowing, something is not right. And I could not for the life of me put my finger on what was wrong, but something was wrong. And I went in and two tables, the basil was flat wilted. One of the pumps had failed. And the fans were running. So basically, whether it was the actual change in the aroma from the basil, or whether it was a hormonal thing or whatever it was, I knew something was wrong in the greenhouse. And I shut the mower off and literally went out into the greenhouse and found this. And I have talked to growers everywhere who have had similar experiences. They walk in and they just know something's up. And and it could be a feeling, it could be a smell. What's actually triggering it? Who knows? To be honest with you, I don't care. The fact that a grower is so in tune with their production that they can tell something's up, I think is amazing. And I think we're really just starting to learn, you know, we're in kindergarten here. Yeah. uh, Do you think uh,
1: artificial intelligence can ever replace that grower experience? I,
0: I, I say no. I think my biggest question is why would you want to? That's the big
1: Thank you. I just because you can
0: doesn't mean you should. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I mean, really, I mean, uh, and and some of the technology we're working on is, is utilizing AI and machine learning um, for every grower in their particular operation. So they're getting very fast input and analysis of what's been going on, what is going on and how they can make decisions in the future. And so AI is an amazing tool. It's, no different than going from a, you know, a horse-drawn plow to a John Deere with a 10-bottom plow to, you know, some new technology to, to till land. It is just an evolution of the technological tools to enable the grower to do a much better job. So in yeah. theory, I know there's like the autonomous greenhouse challenge, and I think that's amazing. I think it's really cool that, you know, people are, are working on technologies that can actually run themselves I don't see a reason for it. having someone, you know, being someone who spent my entire life in this industry, it's one of the most rewarding fields going. We should have more people involved. The idea that we're just trying to take technology because we maybe can to eliminate human activity. Yes, definitely use automation to change things like repetitive use Um uh, tasks um, to increase our efficiencies to to increase workplace safety as well as food safety absolutely but again it's just like having a toolbox filled with filled with high-end tools they still have to be wielded in the hands of a skilled craftsperson to actually create something amazing
1: i I totally agree and to me um, i've said this a few on a few of my podcast episodes to me agriculture is such a human experience, arguably one of our greatest inventions. Like, why do we want to take that away from ourselves?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean a big part of my work is helping people get involved in agriculture. And um, and it's by far the we most need
1: more connected, connected. A- absolutely. To our food, yeah. Right? No,
0: absolutely. You're you're a hundred percent right. We actually need to have more people connected in with their food than than not. And so yeah. So again, it's, it's, it's a, I mean, it's, it is a double-edged sword, but the technology again, needs to be, you know, something that helps serves us, not replaces us. And even if it could, I don't see a, I don't see a really valid argument for why that should be.
1: Right. And I guess maybe Mars or something. I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, there you go.
1: Yeah. So, you know, as, as you know, I, I'm sure, you know, um, in California and elsewhere, um, control environment, agriculture. Is you know is being scrutinized for the use of energy for its carbon footprint, right? Is is it really better for the environment, say, than than field production? You know, I'm just kind of curious your thoughts. Do you think CEA is being unfairly targeted? Do you think the assumptions and the the questions are correct? And and following that. You know, what measures do you think growers across our industry, whether greenhouse or indoor or something in between, some hybrid, um, do you have any thoughts on on what we could be implementing right now to improve our our energy efficiency and decarbonize, maybe even agriculture as a whole industry? Sure.
0: Sure. Well, um as far as the scrutiny goes, um I I think we see it on both ends. And I th- I think this I think there is a lot of fair scrutiny when um you know, we're at a very interesting time. Uh you know, when I got started in the industry, there were some, you know, the, there were conditions in the industry that were very different, but there were also some in, uh, conditions that were s- strikingly similar to some of the things that we're, we're seeing today. And and a lot of that revolves around hyperbolic claims of technology. You know, I don't see, so I see Gotham Greens, for example, they're building new farms and they're pumping food into, you know, into our food systems, amazing quality food. And they're just knocking it out of the park. I don't see Forbes magazine going, here's the future of food. And this is what, you know, the media loves to go to again the what we call the shiny object technologies and it's not necessarily always a bad thing but i think it it raises some questions because on on one hand It's 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 demonstrating this new technologically advanced farming with all lighting and, you know, completely controlled environment. And certainly that does raise issues about the energy expenditure, the carbon footprint of of that type of. And I think that's very fair. Now, on the flip side, though, we also have a lot of claims basically saying, well, because we're growing using controlled environment agriculture, we're actually so efficient that, you know, we're our our carbon footprint is dramatically lower. And I don't think it's fair to look at it with either lens necessarily. I think, I think it is very fair to look at what the energy input and expenditure is in any type of CEA model. But as we've talked about over the past hour, is that there are many different models and many different applications, and they're not all equal. I mean, we really are comparing apples to oranges to hand grenades. We definitely need to, to look at the various technologies- as they are and, and evaluate them. And in some cases say, okay, this is maybe not a, a viable approach or maybe we need to say, again, being CEA growers, what are we? We're problem solvers. We're trying to find solutions to challenges. So maybe if our, our carbon footprint or our energy expenditure in a certain type of production is higher, how do we improve that? My, my friend Graham Dunling in the UK right now, he's he's developed indoor warehouse technologies where he's lowered his energy Uh, inputs dramatically over most of the commercial firms. If you look at some of the indoor and we'll use indoor vertical firms for the moment. If you look at a lot of them, you know, how much improvement are they making in terms of their energy use? You know, the, the type of lighting, how they light, when they light, how they manage their HVAC, how they manage all the different production systems. And so Graham is really focused on, that, that input. You know, he can grow amazing quality crops. And how does he stay true to the horticultural principles that allow him to do that while now looking at the energy? And I think that's a fair approach that all of us need to do, you know, from your work to my work is that in a greenhouse, you know, for we still have a lot of growers who are using HPS lighting or HID lighting for their production, especially in the, in the, the north. And, and so we have to look at, okay, so it's not just do we use high pressure sodium and now do we change that over to LEDs, which are more efficient? There you can make a case for for doing so or not doing so, but you also have to look at things like, well, do we now maybe instead of lighting our entire greenhouse, what we do with a lot of our systems is we light the just the propagation and nursery area. So we're using the smallest amount of volume of lighting to get the, the maximum. Crop benefits of it. So I think that regardless of the type of technologies we're using, we always need to, and moving the industry forward, we really have to look at ways to balance, you know, enhancing our productivity with our inputs and i think that a lot of growers are doing that now thermal curtains you know the greenhouse industry has been criticized you know greenhouses have been around for as you said over 100 years so greenhouses are old-fashioned greenhouses are outdated you know we have better technologies No, the 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 technological advances in greenhouses in my opinion even the last 30 years have been amazing so from energy efficient glazings uh growing systems air handling systems thermal curtains lighting strategies, I mean it's just been you know nonstop improvement and a lot of that goes to minimizing our energy inputs. You know we're always looking at balancing how much we're putting in in terms of energy as it relates to what we're getting out of it and, and trying to, to balance that. So it's certainly no easy answer, but I, I think that growers both in the greenhouse and indoor space, but particularly in the greenhouse space right now are doing some amazing things just on their own. And I think that the conversations are important, but we always have to temper that because I always hear that all the time, you know, well, indoor growing is the most sustainable type of growing and it's going to take over everything because it, it's cool. It's like, well, not exactly, but you could also make the same argument with field growing or uh, greenhouse growing. It's, it's not kind of the absolute. Mm-hmm.
1: I want you to talk a little bit more for just a minute about what you said about lighting, how just lighting the propagation area um, gets the most bang for your buck. Can you explain that a little bit sure. more?
0: Yeah. Okay. I'll use my own farm as an example. So, I've got a four thousand square foot greenhouse, um, small, low tech greenhouse, designed for winter lettuce production. And so, in the summertime, we are. So, so let me back up. So, in our NFT system, we have lettuce and. Uh, during the optimal time of the year in our summer production when we we've got the mat, the best sunlight best environment we have a propagation system where we we germinate the lettuce we we grow them at a high density in a propagation system for 2 weeks and then they go they get transplanted into a nursery system so it's that's a hydroponic channel system just like our regular system but they're at a higher density so they're still close together they're spaced out a little bit now and they're in the main growing system but they're still fairly tightly spaced. So we're using our space efficiently and they stay there for another two weeks. And then for the last two weeks of their cycle, they go into the main system. Now that extra nursery system allows us to grow the plants closer together, use our space much more efficiently. Again, we're balancing though, like we talked about, you know, getting as many plants in per square foot as you can, but still maintaining proper horticultural parameters. So, so basically we've got a system where we have them two weeks in propagation, then two weeks in nursery, then two weeks in finishing, and then they're out the door. Now using that model, as we go into the fall and winter, we have less sunlight, obviously growth slows down. And in in New England, in the depths of the winter, basically that two week, two week, two week suddenly becomes four week, four week, or two week, four week, four week. So basically now our production time in the greenhouse essentially doubles. And so in some cases you know it makes economic sense to just accept lower production rates in the winter and harvest your plants. What we started to do is we started to do a lot of lighting work both with HID or high, uh, high pressure sodium lighting as well as LED lighting. And if you provide enough lighting to bring back like your DLI to around 18 to 20 you you're basically able to replicate your summer production. So in other words, your winter production is the same as your summer production, but there's a great cost to that. Obviously economics, both in terms of the, the cost of the installation of the lighting and then the cost of operation. So what we started to look at is, is the growth stages of the plant. So when the plant is really developing and you're setting the tone for the plant, and you've probably heard me complain about this and yell at people all the time is that you need to focus on your seedlings From germination through the first few weeks, when you're ready to transplant, that is where the the growth rate and the quality of that plant is already set. You can never take a lousy seedling and make a good crop out of it. So we always, like raising children, we put all of our effort or most of our effort into raising seedlings. So during the seed, what we call propagation, that's the seedling stage, and then the nursery stage when the plants are still very small and close together. We found that if we maximize our inputs at that time, that means the right amount of lighting, making sure that our environment is spot on. That sets the tone. Now, if we we go out and we put them out in the main greenhouse and finish them off, obviously, if your environment is is bad, it's going to impact the crop negatively. But it's, it's like we, we hit the ground running. So we're accelerating our growth and quality by really focusing on raising the high quality seedlings and nursery plants. So what we found was when we compared growing the full production cycle with lights, we were getting good quality, but at a high cost. What we found when we were growing with no lights, we were still getting good quality, but at much slower growth, but at lower costs. So what we found was when we lit the nursery and propagation, because again, they're, they're higher density. So we're only lighting a small portion of the greenhouse. So we're using our energy input is minimal, but that is where we're getting the most benefits. We're raising high quality plants that are growing fast and are vigorous. And when we transplant them out of the growing system, they are already three steps ahead. And so even if we're not lighting the main part of the greenhouse, even in the dead of winter, we're still maintaining almost the same growth rate as what we did when we were lighting them.
1: Are you serious? Not quite.
0: Yeah, not quite. But still, I would say we're probably saving or, or we probably are maybe a little less than a week off of full lights. So, if, for example, in a table that maybe every week costs us $500 to light, we're not getting, and we're getting, you know, summer growth. But if we can take that input away and still get, almost the same quality and growth rate, it's it's the, again, it's the economic bang for your buck. So, so
1: okay. So you said in the summer, it's two weeks, two weeks, two weeks. So that's six yep. weeks in the winter without any lighting, but still control, right? It's two weeks, four weeks, four weeks. So it's 10 weeks.
0: At maximum. Yes.
1: Maximum. So when you just light the propagation and nursery, is it two weeks, two weeks, and then like three weeks?
0: It's about two weeks, two to two and a half weeks and then two and a half weeks to finishing wow so, yeah
1: just by like giving them that growth spurt and then they just kind of maintain that momentum think about greenhouse. raising
0: children if you and now, again it's not absolute because there are yeah. always exceptions but by and large if you raise a child with a lot of love and attention and discipline and education and a good environment that is going to set them on a path to be a much more well-adjusted adult than someone who grew up in poverty and in harsh climates and conditions and everything else. It and going be a
1: lot harder to catch them up in the
0: a- end. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, it's not a guarantee, but certainly, you know, we talk about nature and nurture. It really is with the plants. If we're focusing on, and again, and, and I've been challenged on it. We talk about this a lot in our grower seminar and things like that, but if you pour, it's the 8020 rule. If you pour 80% of your effort and inputs into raising those seedlings, you are gonna infinitely get or infinitely more quality and, and productivity. I've never ever seen anybody take lousy seedlings and make good crops out of it. Just really doesn't happen. So so focusing that's, that energy there.
1: That's so fascinating. I, I have a, comment and a question. I'm gonna start with the question. Did it matter if it was LED or HPS? Did you see much of a difference?
0: Um, actually, to be very honest with you, in the winter time, we actually saw a little bit more hardy growth under HPS. little more and, and obviously, that's that a much surprising. Less- No, it's actually not. Um, Although you, you hear people all the time say, well, LEDs are infinitely better than HPSs. And that's, that's kind of a simplistic approach because there's a lot of different qualities that you get from light and costing and efficiencies are only part of it. And par
1: is also.
0: Oh, absolutely. (laughs) What, what you're getting out of lights. Well, well, I thought um, LED lights supplied everything that the sun provides and more, isn't that right? <laughs> um so yeah, I, and again, and and you know, as we have advancing technologies and a lot of new growth in the industry, of course, there's a lot of claims that you know you you as an industry professional just shake your head at and go, okay, sure. Yeah. But yeah. you know, that that is one of the things. Yeah, is the quality of the light um that's coming off. And we also saw um with with um uh, metal halide ver, you know, the blue yeah. lighting versus that in terms, especially in terms of seedling production. I actually some of my best growth using metal halide for the initial propagation. And then as they go into nursery into under high pressure sodium, which is a little bit closer to, well, I don't even, I don't want to say that a little closer to the actual environment of the ambient light that we have in new England in the winter, but it does seem Mm. to transition better.
1: What something. So the comment I wanted to make is that there has been some research that also shows that if you start a plant with less water, um, if you, if you kind of restrict the water that you give a plant that you can actually train it to be drought tolerant. Mm. Um, so I, I almost feel like it's kind of the, along the same lines of what you were just talking about, that you can, you know, by starting the plant with the resources you want to give it, or by giving it that the right start, that it can finish better, uh, yeah. whatever better is, however you define that. But um,
0: That's a good point is what, what, what your, your end goal is and what better is, is certainly, you know, we've, we've intentionally stressed fruiting plants for better flavor. Sometimes there's a a cost to that in terms of overall long-term productivity. So, so it is, it's understanding what the plants need as kind of their optimal, but then there may be times we, we want to try to manipulate that. And again, Mm -hmm. we, we understand so little of that. We're just, we're, we're babies in that. That regard, so that's going to be one of the more exciting advances is is how we can do things like that. I think that that research is fascinating, and I love hearing yeah. stories like that.
1: I have a, a a question for you, since you're a greenhouse guy, and and I kind of contemplate this myself, um, which is the idea around decarbonization. Right, we're trying mm-hmm. to decarbonize commercial buildings and cars and agriculture and all these things. And when I think about greenhouses, Especially in heating, especially where you're located. I'm, I'm assuming you heat your greenhouses with natural gas or maybe propane, but some fossil fuel. Yep. Is there a path to decarbonizing greenhouse heating?
0: So I, I personally think it's a little bit ignorant to just say, well, we need to decarbonize everything. You know, we're going to cut. Uh, you, there was an announcement recently about the Netherlands um, getting completely away from fossil fuels. Fairly soon, wow. and I, I, I'm, how are they going to do that? I, and I'm just like, what is the greenhouse industry going to do? So, I think that, but that you know, that's a great political talking point. Look, we're going to decarbonize the industry by 2030, and you know, and we have no idea how we're going to do it, but I do think that, uh, again, and this is these are technologies that growers and, and tech providers are already doing, so we start looking at okay, well, let's look at our carbon. Uh, uh, our fossil fuel input to greenhouse production. Okay. So how do we minimize both the usage as well as the impact? Okay. So we can start looking at more energy efficiencies, you know, thermal curtains, different glazings, uh, growing techniques, um, things like, you know, lowering your air temperature, but maybe raising your, um, Uh, nutrient solution temperature or putting the heat down lower managing your environment better obviously there's lots of different strategies and techniques we can do to to lower our actual heat input or our fuel input into that heating we can start looking at things like co2 scrubbing this has been done for a very long time we're actually pulling co2 out of the the waste stream of the exhaust gases and using that as a, uh, an input to our, our production. So that's a great technology that's been around a long time. It's always being refined. So so CO2 that normally had been put into the environment is now being plugged into the plant growth. So that's a great strategy. Finding out, you know, finding other ways to you know whether we're looking at the materials, our packaging materials in the produce industry. You know there are there are lots there. Our distribution models, how we're we're hauling produce around, how we're cooling it and keeping it and storing it. The waste that you know you talked about earlier, the food waste. So there's a lot of places where we can just start chipping away. And I, I think the industry is already doing that a lot. I think you know you know when you go on social media, you're on LinkedIn and, you know, you have all these people talking about how, you know, well, we're going to just, we're going to decarbonize everything and we're going to do this and that. I I don't, I think that's a little too simplistic. And, um, and not practical. I'm a very practical guy. And if I can find ways today to start heading in that direction, to start limiting my inputs. And and quite frankly, I think one of the best ways to drive the industry there is, is lowering their costs. So, so finding better ways, energy efficiencies. If you can find a way to lower your propane or natural gas uh, use by 10%, what does that do to your bottom line? So inadvertently, maybe you're lowering your carbon footprint or your carbon carbonization uh, and impact in the environment. But if you do that, and you put a facility next to a distributor or in line with a distribution center, and you just shaved, you know, 800 miles a week off your distribution chain, there's another bit. So it, there's no one simple approach. And when people say, I've come up with the solution, they're full of crap. But basically, encouraging Government, you know, people always look to the government for subsidies and for, you know, programs. But I think that finding ways to incentivize some of these technologies that are already useful, I think is is a big first step. If we could cut our food waste down, if we could shave some of the, the carbon input to our distribution model, and if we could increase our energy efficiencies right there, that would go such a long way.
1: Yeah. And I'm sorry, in
0: 10 years or 20 years, we're still going to be here. We're not all going to die. The earth's not going to blow up, but we do need to make some changes.
1: Yeah. We need to adapt a little bit. Yes, absolutely. And, and humans are good at adapting, you know, whether we decide to do it ahead of time or after the fact, we will adapt. I think I also find it a little ironic in a way to talk about decarbonizing agriculture because agriculture is the business of fixing carbon and, yeah. and producing carbohydrates. I mean, right. I mean, that's ultimately what all these plants are made of are carbohydrates. Right. That's what they're doing, fixing CO2 and to make carbohydrates and sugars. So to decarbonize agriculture kind of feels self-defeating and, and just using that terminology.
0: Yeah. And it's that, it's that absolutist thinking, if that's really even a word, but it, it is that it, it's, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, I contend, you know, once we stopped being hunter gatherers and we started some level of actual managed agriculture, that's what drove the development of our society. And that drove all technological advancement. It drove all movement across the planet and the development of societies. And it has never remained static. It has changed constantly and we've adapted it. And so this idea that suddenly this impending crisis is going to hit us tomorrow that we somehow can't adapt to, except for those few experts on LinkedIn, who are the geniuses of our time, you know, it's kind of ridiculous. The, the industry does, and you're, you're correct, the industry does need to make changes. and But I think that, that the changes that are happening within the industry um, should be encouraged and facilitated more, but certainly are underway and happening every day. I see it all the time.
1: Yeah. Well, and to be that profitable business, cutting our costs, our operating costs, um, including the use of energy, is going to ultimately make these businesses more profitable. So it's in everybody's best interest, really, in a way. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's no downside to it.
1: Yeah. Do you, you know, do you think of controlled environment agriculture and you've been in it for a while? I, I haven't asked you one of my big questions, but I just want to ask you over time and, and in your experience and with the, you know, startups of, of new sort of sectors within controlled environment agriculture, do you, do you consider this industry competitive or collaborative or both? <sighs>
0: That's a great question. Um, I, 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 certainly think it's both. And, and again, kind of using the double-edged swordment um, analogy. So I think that really it is driven like most businesses, uh, in terms of a competitive nature and that's, and that, that competition has driven all of our great technological advancements. And, um, now, collabor- now, collaboration, I mean, obviously, there's a couple ways of, of looking at that. But in terms of, I, I think, especially here in North America, I would love to see more collaboration uh, of growers. And that's a lot of my work. I try to facilitate that. Now, with that said, though, one of the things that we've seen, and you and I have talked about this, in, in the explosion of of CEA both in terms of the growth of the actual industry but also the the great the greater awareness suddenly you know in the last few years everyone knows what controlled environment ag is or indoor farming is and it's on everybody and so that has of course driven a lot of people into our industry particularly from outside the industry and of course there are so many amazing people and amazing companies but also some disreputable ones and kind of the, the, the growth of this, well, we need to share more information mentality does kind of strike a sour chord with a lot of people in the industry who are developing it, who are growing, the growers, for example, the, the companies that are manufacturing CEA technology and the growers that are using it and farming and producing food, they are understandably hesitant to share information, very specifically because there are a lot of people in this industry that are just looking for that information to then present as their own and, and utilize it. And again, I, and I know that's common in every industry. So so it is a challenge that we have to overcome. But kind of this, this concept that, well, if everyone just shared all of their data and we kind of put it into a big pot and everybody could take it... You you know, because I see a lot of the innovators in this industry. And I, I mean, from my own perspective, I've had a lot of information that I have given out that I I worked hard and I, you know, came across through a lot of blood, sweat and tears. And then, you know, other people or other companies simply then try to copy that or take that and 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 sell it as their own or present it as their own or, or implement it as their own so it is a difficult thing to walk and i don't you know i don't take that lightly and i don't think that there is an easy answer to it i think if more growers or more technology providers could actually get together on stuff i think things like what you do right here where we're having a free exchange of ideas i think is really valuable in the industry but it is hard especially when we have a lot of technologies and technological advancements that people are developing in the field, you know? So I know growers all over, all over the world that are through their own experimentation and their own production, finding, you know, little things that may enhance their production or um, some changes in that. And and, and there's a uh, boutique CEA consulting companies that would just love to get a hold of that data. You know, the, sometimes they put out quote unquote, quote, um, surveys. Please take our survey and give us all of your information about this, that, and the other thing. And then they turn around and they use that as a uh, a product that they then sell. Technically, yeah, of course, they're entitled to do it, but I think it it harms the industry and it also degrades the work, the hard work and hard innovation. We have people, you know it, you're one of these people. You're one of the people that is out there in the industry every day working hard, innovating, and creating value. And not everyone is doing that. So, again, I'm sorry for the long-winded response, but it's certainly not an easy answer. And I think when people kind of speak in absolutes, it, um, it it doesn't serve the conversation well. I think we have to find more ways to share information. But, you know, everyone needs to come to the table with something. And everybody does have something. But you know, too often we see people that are bringing the things to the table and then others are just taking them off the table. So I think we need to find ways that there is a, a synergistic and, and mutually beneficial result from, from some of that.
1: Yeah. I also find that just in terms of the scientific research, the plant science, the ag engineering that has gone into greenhouses and um, indoor plant production, whatever system you're using, that there's a lot of information out there. And um, I've seen um, some people not even recognize that this is already uh, a mature industry and not doing any sort of a literature review or recognizing that a lot of the work that they're trying to do on their own has already been figured out or is being explored. Or kind of like what you were saying, They take, but they don't give back. You know, it's like, okay, yeah, I want all your research, and I want to, you know, I want to try to replicate what you did, and thank you so much for doing that science. But then, when those scientists and researchers and academics say, okay, now what? What do you see? How can we help you? And it's not reciprocated. And I, I feel like the industry does itself a disservice by not finding a way to come to some sort of agreement or consensus. Like this is, mm. the, this is what we are all struggling with, all of us. Like, let's just, you know, even if you, we just started with what is hard, maybe not even what you figured out and what you think is a trade secret, but I bet that there's 10 or more indoor vertical farming entities that are all struggling with the same thing.
0: Oh, of course. And if they
1: could at least agree to that, to let someone like, you know, someone like us, a consultant, a designer, or talk to the Optimia group or, you know, the researchers in academia and say, okay, we have all agreed that this is a challenge that we are cannot figure out on our own or it's going to take too many resources. We want to work on this other thing. Help us with this. Yep. But I don't even hear that conversation.
0: Yeah, no, I've 100% agreed. I mean it always has to be a two-way street and, and unfortunately, some of the disreputable people or the people who are just looking to, to capitalize on available information that kind of ruins it for everybody because it creates a resistance. You know I know you know many leading farming companies right now that are doing amazing work that hold their production process, I'm frustrated sometimes just to be very honest with you, AmHydro prov- provides NFT systems for a number of major leaf crop growers, and they won't even acknowledge that they're using our systems. I mean, fortunately, if you look at their social media, our systems are pretty unique in terms of appearance, so you can look and you can tell that there are systems. But they don't even acknowledge some of the, the the different companies that they utilize, specifically because they want to maintain the the competitive advantage that they had through you know the development of their thing. And it, it, it is it's it's frustrating. But I, you know, as a grower, I get it. When I was early on, when I first started growing. People used to always want to come by, see the greenhouse. And, um, and I loved giving tours. I loved showing them around. Well, all the food safety issues and stuff aside, now I, I never allow people to come in my greenhouse now because people aren't, all they're doing is they're coming to, to look and I have people take pictures and, oh, I see how you do this this way. And, okay. That, that. And, you know, when you work really hard and invest a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of everything into developing something, you know, it it's it's difficult to just let it, you know, go out there open source, if you will, for a lot of people who will be just as happy to take it and capitalize on it without it. So if maybe we can figure out some ways that that make it mutually beneficial for some of these companies and growers and researchers.
1: I'd, I'd like to to, to find a way to yes, help facilitate absolutely. that in some in some way. Cause I do feel like there's gotta be A few things that we could all agree on could could kind of lift everyone up (laughs) together and not necessarily I'm not saying level the playing field right because we're still in a business right. right we're still competing for shelf space you know all these different things it's still a new a new industry at least you know sort of um depending on what Part of the industry you're in. Um, But, you know, just to kind of raise everybody up, I feel like there's got to be a few fundamental things that we can work on together.
0: Yeah. And and we didn't talk about it much, but I'll give you a real quick background. So, one of the things when I was growing and, and when I was a consultant, I mean, I was that was my full time profession. And I had no interest in joining a company. And so I I knew of AmHydro a lot. I knew the the founder, Michael Christian. I had consulted for some of his growers. And Michael always tried to focus on making growers successful. Well, uh, Jenny Harris, who was their finance director, and Scott Kornberg, who was a horticultural director, in 2014, they purchased the company. And their goal was specifically to raise the industry, the entire industry, by creating more successful growers. So that's providing good technology, cost-effective technology, providing a lot of information, a lot of guidance, a lot of training, a lot of consulting. And that was an amazing model. And I was, I thought this was fantastic. Unfortunately, um, Scott, who was a wonderful guy, 54 days after buying the company, passed away, had a massive heart attack. So Jenny reached out to me. And she said, you know, I know you're on the East Coast, but would you fly out to the West Coast? Could we, you know, just get together? Maybe we can find some ways we can work together because, you know, obviously we need to, to pursue this mission of creating more successful growers. And, you know, we need somebody like yourself who's been in the industry. So I went out there with the the, the thought of maybe I'll do some consulting for them. I'll work with them a little bit, help them out. I got out there, I met her and the team, and I saw what their mission was, which was again to raise, as you say, to raise the you know, the rising tide, raising all boats. Yep. It's a corny old expression, but it's there for a reason. And her entire mission was we can't do it alone. The entire industry needs to be brought up. And you know, a big part of the one of the big challenges in the industry is the lack of. Uh, experienced growers and a lot of that growing knowledge that's that's where there's a worldwide shortage and and i knew that you know i wanted to be part of that mission is to to raise the industry and the only way to do that is to make growers successful that's again good good equipment good technology good methodology good approaches and, and that brings everybody up. And so that actually kind of what was what brought me to AmHydro. And that's something that we work on every single day. And I know a lot of people like yourself do the same thing. Because if one company is producing really great technology and everything else, that's cool, except it, it doesn't raise the industry. And if the industry doesn't come up in advance... We're going to stagnate. We're really not going to to do all the things that we really could do. So the industry as a whole has to rise um, to meet global demand of product situations and environmental and political and food security and all these different issues that we're, you know, we've all talked about. In order to do that, the entire industry needs to to pick up to to a much higher level. Yeah,
1: I mean, you know, if I just think about sort of, if one of our missions in controlled environment, agriculture, or just agriculture in general, is to be able to feed the world, um, nourish the world, um, reduce our, you know, malnourishment and rates and people who are underfed, we're not creating a cell phone, you know, we're not a a cell, I I said cell phone, does anyone say cell phone anymore? (laughs) We're not creating a smartphone, right? We're not creating like a gadget and there's not going to be Apple and Android, right? There's not going to be just like two choices um, for people all over the world. There's lots of different types of food. There's lots of different cultural um, desires for different foods. There's different, you know, systems and different needs to grow that food. And again, I feel like there's this arrogance, like one company, or maybe two companies are going to grow all the food in a vertical farm or in a greenhouse, not just in North America, you know, but around the world that is not going to happen. I mean, there are so many needs and so many different ways to grow these plants, to grow commodity crops, to grow, mm-hmm nutritious crops, to grow non-plant crops, right? Like pharmaceuticals and mushrooms. That's not a plant, I hate to tell yeah. people, but mushrooms are not a plant. Oh, that's There's a brown a, I plant. Just, <laughs> it's a brown plant. There is room for so many, right? I just,
0: I don't know. Not only is that singular model completely unrealistic, that's dangerous and why would we want
1: that? How does that you know, help food security? Right. If that's one of our arguments for this industry.
0: One of the greatest things when CEA really started to get traction is that we need to move away from the large scale industrial farming model and localize food production again. Great. Now, as the industry grows, what do we see? We see the app harvests and we see these massive mega farms. We're shifting right back into large scale industrial agriculture again. And I'm like, no, what we need to do is use CEA to really reinvent and reinvigorate localized, small scale quality food production. And as you said, that can look like many different things and in many different areas, different crops, different technologies, different approaches. The more diversity we have to that, the better. And again, the more
1: resilient we will be.
0: Yeah, we don't want to create the the Apple system where we try to dominate the world with this one, because that, especially in food, because we have so many different cultural and economic and environmental factors that roll into all of our food everywhere. It, it's foolhardy to try to, you know, pigeonhole that into one model. Well,
1: and, and like you said, you know, farming is a business and it, the price point of lettuce that's grown in New York versus Mississippi, I'm gonna guess is maybe a little bit different. Slightly. Um, And then, you know, you go to, I don't know, Sweden, or you go to Egypt, or you go to China. I bet those economics are a little bit different. Um, And even the things that we might grow, um, might not be applicable to different places. I was talking, um, I don't know if you happen to catch my conversation with um, Merle Jensen. Oh, um, <laughs> he, he was talking about the work that he did in um, the Emirates and he said that they didn't know what to do with broccoli. So, guess
0: what? They don't grow broccoli. They don't grow broccoli. <laughs> I'm so glad you had Merle on. Uh, you know, we, we really do stand on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. And while we have so many armchair CEA experts right now proclaiming their unbelievable expertise and innovation, is that everything that we're doing is based on a lot of work from the 1950s and 60s and 70s and on and on. And you know the, the people in our industry 30 years from now are gonna be so far ahead of us based on the work that we did, which is based on the work that those before us did. Mm-hmm. And people like uh, Dr. Jensen, I mean, he's one of the few people that really was in it at the, at its infancy here in the US as it developed i mean to me talking to him i had dinner with him in chicago a number of years ago it was like sitting down at a table with jackie robinson to talk about baseball and i mean the 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 wealth not only of knowledge but the innovation at the time which of course we now kind of look at and say well you know we've got we've got led lights now so we're really cool well everything we do is based on their work and so I'm so grateful that you had him on and people like that because every bit of information and experience that we can get from them is gold. Just mm-hmm. as hopefully, eventually, our humble achievements someday will, you know, maybe lay the groundwork for some newer innovations that do some good things.
1: Well, and even just the practicality of their work. Yeah. You know, trying to figure out how to grow certain crops in. Really challenging environments, and you know, taking the work that he, uh, the lessons that he learned when he moved to the University of Arizona in Tucson in the semi-arid climate, and then the challenges that they were able to work through. You know, they they had they had figured out some challenges in in Arizona that were then. Applied in Mexico, but then Mexico had some different challenges like around like soil and water quality and things like that. So then they, you know, they took what they knew from Arizona, applied new things, you know, those and then new things, learn new things in Mexico, and then were able to then translate that. To yep. the Middle East, which we know has serious challenges related to water and soil right. and sand and, you know, just uh, and water quality and everything and, and being able to translate that, you know, and, and but it was all practical. You know, it was all just very grounded um, and, and easy to translate and teach to other people. Yep.
0: And they did. I mean, they did. They proved it out. That's one of the things when I see, you know, you pick up the Horta Daily and you see, oh, such and such vertical farming company is going to build farms all over the world and it's going to change the way we produce food. And they don't even have a working prototype or don't have any commercial scale. You know, that's one of my issues with some of the, the yeah. CEA consultants who have no practical experience in doing what they're literally supposedly experts in. And, and you know, people like Dr. Jensen. Sure, there was a lot of theory in development of of a lot of the technologies, but they put that into practice every single time. And you're right. It was practical. It's usable. At the end of the day, if if I tell you something about our system and how innovative it is, if I can't prove that out on a commercial scale, then what value is that? at all. Now, yeah. there, you know, there's a lot of great, you know, uh, value in, you know, trying to develop new things and saying, look, we're going to try to develop a whole new irrigation type of system. But again, you know, we get a little premature with the celebra- celebrations about, you know, developing a system that is not tested in the field and is not proven itself and practical. So I think that what, what you say is, is really important.
1: Yeah. So, okay, we talked about the past a little bit. What excites you about the future of controlled environment agriculture? What are you looking forward to?
0: Nothing. We figured it all out. Oh,
1: I forgot about that. Okay. Congratulations. We're done.
0: (laughs) Our work here is finished. Yeah. So kind of like some of the things that we talked about is is the fact that as long as we focus on the intersection of, of our productivity and economics, there is so much more that we don't understand about. Crop production, you know, a lot of our technologies as they relate to efficiencies and uh, controls, you know, are established, obviously, there's a lot of room for for development, I'm excited about energy conservation technologies. I'm excited about our ability to understand better more and more every day what the plants are telling us and what the plants need and how we can effectively provide that. Oh, we know how much plant, you know, light the plants need and how much uh, of certain nutrients they need. Big deal. There's a lot more and, and understanding that and maybe finding ways to quantify that. So, so maybe we, in the next 10 years, we find ways to actually measure electromagnetic Uh, radiation that the plants are giving off when they're moisture stressed and we adjust our nutrient or our irrigation accordingly or our environmental control. There's so much more to learn. Again, looking at, at, you know, people like Dr. Jensen and Dr. Sheldrake and Dr. Boodley, who in the sixties were doing things that were groundbreaking at the time, you know, that accelerated our learning. And so, our technology is now again. You know, we get caught up in this. Well, we've we've got it all figured out. Well, we're we're scratching the the surface at best, and so I'm excited about that. I'm excited about some new technologies that Am Hydro is going to be rolling out. I'm not. I can't quite. I want to. I want to roll it all out for you and reveal it all to you um, in the next few months. We're going to be talking about it, but it's uh, some technology to integrate practical in greenhouse learning. Um, access to resources, access to not only actual training and resources, but to, to live experts and expert growers, but then also to use machine learning and, and AI for your particular application that is taking all the data that, that it's collecting that you're using now and sharpening your, your decision-making tools. So in six months, in a year, in two years, you actually can make dramatically improved decisions and track your crops better and things like that. So it's accelerating our ability to, to learn and to give growers better tools. So again, with the technologies, I wanna to be careful of saying, well, we, we want to replace a grower, we wanna kind of replace the the human input, but rather we want to give much better tools and we can be much more effective. We can grow better quality, we can grow more with less. We can lessen our environmental impact. We can cut our food waste. All those things that we that are driving the industry now, we're really kind of at our infancy. And uh, I hope I live long enough to see a lot of them. But I think over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, we're gonna see some very exciting things in that realm. I don't think we're gonna come up with a new tech singular technology. I think we're gonna see a lot of failure. In, in the industry, particularly maybe around indoor vertical farming or kind of that singular model, you know, wh- wherever we see a model that this is it, we're going to take this model and we're going to replicate it all over the world. I think everywhere that we see that, I think a majority of those are going to be gone, maybe five years, maybe eight years, 10 years. Um, I think that, that, that and I think that's a good thing because I think what we really need to do is look at the, the combination of simplicity, and horticultural science married with that use of the technological tools for all those things we talked about. Because again, what we're looking for is economic returns. We're talking about food security. We're talking about food safety. We're talking about sustainability, community involvement in our food I mean, there's a lot of moving parts. So it's not one. I want to see more growers. I want to see more and varied technology. And I want to see us reduce our waste and um, again, to, to to be growing more with less and, and seeing that how the CEA industry and the, the field conventional industry complement each other and make our food systems, whether we're talking here in, in the States um, or in very rural areas or very high density urban areas are all more resilient and all more effective.
1: What is the next big crop? that you think there's going to be, or what would you like to Uh, see as the next big crop?
0: Well, obviously a lot of, a lot of work in soft fruits, of course, things like strawberries and raspberries. That's, I mean, that's, that's all great. And that's fascinating. Um, I couldn't do um, strawberries on a commercial scale because I would eat my way right through the crop. There's
1: that. that. yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And if I could grow, find out a way to grow Snickers bars, I'd be doing really well. Okay. But uh, so I, I I don't think there's going to be a lot of people looking for the next big crop. I don't think there's going to be a singular crop. I think obviously leafy greens is going to be a very big um Uh, component over the next 10 years, because we're going to basically, I think a lot of the leafy green production that's currently in the field is going to convert out into CEA and the field production is going to go into other more land intensive crops. But I do think that as we go, we're going to see more growers that are going to be growing a higher diversity of crops. So rather than one or two or three different crops, they're going to be growing a wider variety, maybe offering produce lines. I think that our kind of, you know, cut salad, mix baby leaf greens market is is getting saturated so i think we're going to see more diversity in our lettuce offerings are i mean consumers are notorious for always wanting more so you know 15 years ago when everybody basically ate iceberg lettuce and all of a sudden they wanted a leaf lettuce and then they wanted romaine lettuce and now they want baby lettuce and you know so they're always looking at snacking tomatoes for example instead of just beef takes steaks now we have cherries and tomatoes on the vine and snacking tomatoes So I think the more diversity of offerings within kind of the conventional crops we're growing, I see a lot of growth in ethnic markets. I mean, obviously we have communities everywhere all around the world that are underserved in the the produce industry. And so I think that that's a huge opportunity for growers and and it's a great thing for all of our populations. So I think that to me is what I'd like to see a lot more of, And, and, and I think as we go, you know there are going to be a lot more i think cea because just because of the nature of it you know we do so much plant based research and have so many plant based products i mean we're looking at you know the cosmetics industry where we're looking at fragrances and and colors and and certain chemicals that you know are plant based that we haven't even really you know obviously people think of cannabis and certain pharmaceuticals but everything from new cancer drugs that are plant based to Flavorings for soda and chewing gum are are untapped. And I think the value of that uh, is is just infinite.
1: I love that. You know, just thinking about, I don't know, soap, you know, body wash, like all these, anything that is scented, candles, right? Anything that's scented is, why do they have to be artificial scents? Like, I mean, these plants, you know, basil. Cannabis. I mean, I, I, there's a, all these plants that produce all these terpenes and, you know, that are, are scents, right? VOCs that are actually we smell. We've learned through cannabis how to extract these oils. I'm actually, I'm guessing that it wasn't invented with cannabis. I bet those oils were extracted from other plant yes, products sure. first. Why aren't we extracting them? Maybe we are. Maybe there are certain cosmetics that are, but there, that seems like a huge yeah. opportunity.
0: So I will send you some loofah sponges and you and Marcia will cut them up and you will take some CBD oil and some basil oil and maybe some lemongrass oil and you will create yes. the next million dollar project product. But I I, I think (laughs) as we look at collaboration in the industry, that also I think is a a great vehicle for collaboration where we can have companies that are growing, that specialize in very specific crops and extraction techniques and, you know, that are producing very specific compounds that all can work together. So, I mean, obviously the food production industry is critically important and there's an infinite amount of growth that needs to happen there. But Controlled environment agriculture just can cover over to so many things. So whether yeah. we're talking about homeopathics to new medicines, uh, people are growing you know tobacco for for specifically for for vaccines. People are growing oh. seed potatoes using aeroponics that are virus free. So I mean that's all you know. We 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 we're just playing with that right now. We haven't really been able to put that into to use. So I think the the growth for CEA is just absolutely infinite.
1: Yeah, I agree. All right well last question okay what do plants crave?
0: Huh. What do plants crave So plants uh, all as you know have have very specific or, or fairly specific parameters that they need for for optimum growth to and again plants are at different stages whether if it's at a vegetative state, whether it's trying to reproduce itself and we, As the end user, whether we're eating it, we're uh, deriving medicine from it, we're, we're creating, you know, new genetic seed crosses that we're we're looking to to develop ways to to get certain things out of plants. So the plants have, you know, fairly specific requirements, and I think that you know by optimizing their physical environment, their nutritional environment. We didn't even get a chance to talk about the microbial environment, but that's a very important part. So the the more we can understand about plants needs through our research, through our practical experience, and through better understanding of some of the things that the, the potentially new technology we, we talked about of, you know, understanding how plants communicate. I think those are all really exciting things. So again, I, I think we, we do know enough about what plants crave in terms of their environment, their nutrition, their overall needs to, to maximize them to a certain degree, but we still have a lot to learn. So plants just want to be listened to. So pay attention to what's going on. Pay attention to what visual symptoms your plants are, are, are giving off, how they're interacting with your, all the inputs you're putting in, how they taste, um, what they look like. And uh, and responding to them, so I think that's kind of what my take on what a plant would crave. I mean, we can get into a lot of specifics, but I think at the end of the day, whatever you do to them will pro- will produce some result, and hopefully, we're smart enough to at least pay attention a little bit.
1: Love it. Okay, well, that's the end of the official questions. Now, I have just a handful of rapid fire questions. So. Okay. Quick answer. Um, Keep them short. Yeah, keep them short. That's what you said. Maybe, maybe a um, there might be a yes or no in there, but you know, maybe expand with one or two sentences. All right. Number one, are plants introverts or extroverts?
0: Both, mostly extroverts, but uh, I've seen plants that are certainly introverts.
1: What's the difference?
0: A lot of plants are very subtle in how they they grow and what they express. And, mm. but I think plants respond to a lot of attention. Um, okay. You know, they, they do. And again, you know, I've been almost doing this for 40 years and I'm still in kindergarten. I'm still learning, but the more you can actually pay attention to what they're saying, because they can only speak at a certain volume and you need to, you know, I thought they could
1: scream. They
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> I haven't gotten to the point yet where they've screamed at me, but maybe they are. I just don't know it. They're also, but really uh, yeah, they gritty. do outwardly express. I mean, they do outwardly express a lot. So I would yeah. say yeah, they're mostly extroverts.
1: Okay. Can we feed the world with controlled environment agriculture?
0: No, not completely. But I think that controlled environment ag is going to play an increasingly important role in all aspects, including field farming.
1: Okay. What is the biggest myth about CEA that you wish would be debunked?
0: That basically you add water to plants and put them in a certain environment and they'll take care of themselves. Um, or that, that there's one model out there that will just grow plants correctly. And that plants that growing plants is somehow easy and straightforward that you just set them up and let them go.
1: Done. What is the worst advice you've ever heard about growing a plant?
0: Oh boy. Probably just buy our system, plug it in and wait for the crops to produce and cash to roll in. Yeah, but I I think really, again, there's been many different forms of this, but simply that plant growing is easy. See, the technology that I've developed is very complex, Mm. but plants are very simple. Eh, No.
1: That doesn't make a lot of sense.
0: Not to me, but to a lot of people, it does.
1: All right. Last question. If you could build a greenhouse anywhere. Where would it be and what would you grow?
0: Outside of my own operation, I think I would want to produce in a very cold climate in an underserved community that has limited access to fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, I've seen the effects that, that good nutrition and access to fresh food has had on people in so many different ways, not just their physical health, emotional and mental health as well. So I would want to go to a very you know, harsh climate where it's very difficult to have fresh foods and I would want to, to get in there and produce for you know, year-round access.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Um, well, the last thing I just want to ask you is where can our listeners learn more about AM hydro and your two-day seminar? And also where can they find the polygreens podcast?
0: Oh, okay. So thank you. So the Poly Greens podcast is on, uh, all, every major po- uh, podcast platform, both Nick greens and I do the podcast. Nick has got a great social media presence, nickgreens.com. Uh, I have, uh, obviously on am We have a ton of, uh, information and resources. We have a YouTube channel loaded with very simple, very basic bare bones, not flashy videos, how to do this, how to do that, uh, economics of running a farm business, how to choose micro green grow. I mean, everything you could imagine all for free. I'm on social media. The you know LinkedIn, Twitter, um, Joe Swartz, Am Hydro, Hydro Consultant, all those uh, will pop up. Am Hydro does a, a two-day grower seminar several times a year, and I'm really hoping you will join us and and speak to our uh, attendees where we focus on CEA business. So we start off with basic horticulture. We, we talk about the needs of the plant in plain, simple English, but how that relates to building a controlled environment around it, like what the equipment does, why we're doing what we're doing. Again, the whys. We we always talk about the whys that you talk about, and then we then we do breakout sessions on the actual economics of the business, everything from marketing to innovative uh, sales techniques and and actually managing the business from a financial standpoint. So there's a lot of information on our website amhydro.com backslash seminar. Yeah, amhydro is all over uh, social media from Instagram to Twitter to LinkedIn. We shouldn't be hard to find. Please feel free to check it out. Always feel free to to ask questions. I love when people challenge me um, on certain concepts, and I don't mind a good argument and a discussion. Maybe I'll learn something. Maybe you'll learn something. But an honest and open debate and discussion is really the only way we'll move things forward. I love having conversations with people like you who know this industry inside and out, um, and that's so valuable. So I hope we can do more of that, and I really appreciate the time to come in and talk to you.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you, Joe, so much. And and I'm with you on that. I love having these conversations, having a little bit of debate. I love to be proven wrong. (laughs) I love to learn new things like you. I learn something every day and I learned a ton today. So um, I really appreciate your time um, spent with me and just all of your engagement in general in the industry. It's, it's really valuable and you always have something great uh, to contribute. Uh, so I, I appreciate that engagement.
0: Well, thank you. And I appreciate everything that you're doing because you're doing so much to move the industry forward. So um, I'm looking forward to more awesome conversations going forward
1: ditto all right well joe um thanks so much everybody thank you for joining us today this was my guest uh joe swartz from am hydro and we will be back next week thanks so much thank you for coming back to finish our conversation with joe join us next week to hear our interview with ian baker head of the controlled environment agriculture platform for join bio I'm Dana Swadan, and this has been The Doctor is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. Thank you for growing with us.